Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, good morning to everybody. All right. We are uh, this morning going to be finishing up, actually, a sermon series that we've been in all summer in Paul's first letter uh, to Timothy, a young pastor in a city called Ephesus. And I'm really excited. Uh, We're wrapping up 1 Timothy today. And then next week, uh, as we kind of relaunch into our fall uh, ministry year and church uh, preaching season, we're going to be kicking off a series in uh, the book of Isaiah which I'm really, really excited about. Isaiah is one of those great big books of the Bible that helps you understand uh, so much about who God is and what he's doing in the world. So we're going from a 1 Timothy, a book of about six, a book of six chapters, to Isaiah, a book of almost 70 chapters. So we won't, uh, we won't preach every single one of them, but we'll be in it for a while. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that next week. But uh, this morning, our scripture reading is going to be 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, from verse 11 to the end, which is verse 20. And so, if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Again, our scripture reading, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 20. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an approachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is God's word. It is absolutely true. And it's given to us in love. You can be seated. One of the fundamental things that's true about being human is that if you are a living human being, you are changing, right? You are always, at any given moment of your life, changing from uh, who you've been to who you are becoming and who you will be. This is hard for us to see, usually, in the daily stuff of life. But usually we can see it when we look back. 
You know, one of uh, the really strange experiences that we had over the last couple of years uh, as we went into and then out of COVID isolation was beginning to see one another, sometimes for the first time in a year or two years, right? If, uh, if you had a baby before COVID, uh, in my mind, you still have a baby. But in reality, you now have like a three-year-old, right? If you were a toddler heading into COVID, now you have a, a young child, right? So we all went through this experience, and it was most notable with kids where you're like, oh my goodness, what happened to you? You grew immensely over the course of these years. Maybe you're one of those adults that people saw after COVID and they said, my goodness, what has happened to you? You've grown immensely, right? Uh, isolation wasn't good for all of us. But to be a human being is to be changing. And when you see somebody every day or when you look in the mirror every day, those changes are small and imperceptible. But to be a human being is to be moving from something towards something else, to be moving from someone into someone else. And because this change in our lives is constant, the question that matters most about us at any given time isn't the external stuff. Right? It's not what's happening to you. It's not how's your job going. It's not what's in the news. It's what's going on on the inside. Right? Who are you becoming? Right? If we're always changing, if we're always moving, then the, the, the truth is we're either becoming a better or a worse version of ourselves. And it's always tempting at any given piece of life to assume that what matters most is the stuff that's happening on the outside. Right, think about, again, just all we've lived through in the last couple of years. It's been easy at any given point to assume that what matters most is what's going on with COVID, what's going on in the news, what's going on in politics, what's going on in our jobs. But all of those things we have so little control over, right? So little control over what happens to us or what happens around us. And so the question that we have to learn to ask ourselves is, who am I becoming? Not what's happening to me, but in light of what's happening to me, in light of what's happening all around me, who am I growing up into? Who am I becoming? Bono, the lead singer of U2, this marks me very definitively as a Christian Gen Xer, but Bono mattered a lot to white dudes of a certain age, and I am in his demographic. So Bono, the lead singer of U2, said this in an interview. He says, your nature is a hard thing to change. It takes time. I have heard of people who have these life-changing, miraculous turnarounds, people set free from addiction after a single prayer, relationships saved where both parties say, let go and let God. But it was not like that for me. For all that, I was lost and I am found. It's probably more accurate to say I really was lost and I'm a little less so at the moment. And then a little less and a little less again. That to me is the spiritual life, the slow reworking and rebooting the computer at regular intervals, reading the small print of the service manual. It has slowly rebuilt me in a better image. It's taken years though, and it's not over yet. Right, as followers of Jesus, we have categories for this process of change. Right? The Bible uh, tells us over and over again in story after story that life with God is a journey, right? that life with God is a leaving of some place and a heading 
to some place, right? Whether it's Abraham, the father of faith, leaving Midian, leaving everything he had known to go out on the promise of God towards the promised land. Whether it was Moses and the people of Israel leaving out of Egypt, going through the wilderness towards the promised land, the exiles leaving Babylon, coming back to return to God in the promised land. Or the disciples being called, every one of them, to leave something. Peter, his nets, Matthew, his tax collector booth. Even Paul, his former way of life, is a Pharisee and persecutor of the church. Right? For all of them, the call to discipleship meant the call to leave one thing and to move and to follow Christ into something else. And Paul is talking about that here to Timothy. The language that he uses is that Timothy is called to flee and to pursue. He's called to flee, to run away from something, and to pursue, to run towards something else. And so this morning, we're going to look at those two questions. What are we leaving? What are we fleeing as we follow Jesus? And what are we pursuing as we follow him? Look at what, Timothy, or what Paul says to Timothy at the start. He says, but as for you, O man of God, this phrase, man of God, is an interesting one. It's only used two times in the New Testament. Uh, it's used over and over again in the Old Testament. It's used of these great leaders of Israel, Moses and David and Elijah and the prophets. In the Old Testament, to be called a man of God was to be one of those specially spiritually anointed people, gifted to be God's representatives on earth, to do his work on earth. But then in the New Testament, actually both places, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, it's used in a much more uh, pedestrian way, uh, a way that seems to indicate all people who have embraced the call of Jesus in their lives, people who have left their way of life to follow after Jesus. It's as though Paul's saying, look, in the, in the new covenant, in Christ, every one of you, has received the Spirit. Every one of you is called in a special way and gifted to represent God and to represent his kingdom in the world. And so Paul says to Timothy, man of God, right? Not saying that Timothy is, though he was a pastor, it's not a, a title that elevates him up above other Christians, but simply to say to be a man of God, to be a woman of God, is to be a man or woman, right? It's to be a normal human being, and yet to have God make a claim on your life, to have him call you, to have him set his love on you, to, to set out with him as his follower. It's to live this life between heaven and earth, rooted in earth, and yet attaining by faith through grace this relationship with a God who's beyond this earth. And so Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, man of God, flee these things. Well, to understand that, we ought to ask, what are these things, right? What are the these things that Paul is calling Timothy to flee, to run away from? And we have to look to the verses just ahead to see this. But the these things, most particularly, that Paul is calling Timothy to flee are an arrogance leading to constant conflict in his life and to a love of material wealth and money. Where do we see that? We see in verse 4, just ahead, or, or you know, just behind this section. Uh, verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. 
He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. So that's one of the these things, is this kind of arrogance that leads to constant arguing, constant friction among people. And then the other set of these things we see in verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So having just laid out the the dangers of quarrelsome, argumentative, love of conflict, arrogance, and the love of money, which leads people away from the faith, seeking to get rich or to attain to worldly possessions. Paul says, look, if you're going to be a person of God, a man in this case of God, you're going to have to flee these things. You're going to have to run away from this way of life. So an honest assessment of our culture ought to cause us to pause here, right? To say, oh man, if I'm called to leave constant conflict and a love of material possessions, like, am I going to have to move? That, like, if, or there, if there's two things that have, have marked our culture, right? It's this constant argument, this constant uh, arrogance and polarization against one another, the desire to be right and to get over on one another, and the desire for more, right? The desire for more and bigger and better, the hunger for wealth, the hunger for attainment. If my attaining to some kind of spiritual vitality, this, this life with God is going to mean fleeing those things, how am I going to do that? And how am I going to do that here? Well, the good news is, well, maybe it's good news, maybe it's bad news. There's really nowhere you can move, right? Uh, yeah, the, there's, there's unique struggles with these things in American culture, but there's nowhere that you can go to escape the pull and the, the, the pull of materialism and wealth, the pull of arrogance and conflict, right? Because these aren't uniquely uh, 2022 American problems. These are human problems. These are the basic uh, dynamics of sin. I love this analysis. This is in the book of James. Uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. James writes, to to the church that he's writing. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James is laying out basically a a framework for how sin works in the human heart, in human culture, and in human relationships. That every one of us is a desire, uh, is a hive of desire, right? We want, right? To be a human being is to want stuff, to want things, and then to begin to want those things in in an inordinate way. To want those things in such a way that you say, you know what? If I don't get those things, I'm not going to be okay. If I don't get what I think that I have to have, then I'm not going to make it. I have to have it. And each of us might answer those questions in different ways. If I don't have comfort, if I don't have wealth, if I don't have the love of people, if I don't have peace, if I don't have uh, all people thinking well of me, if I don't have a great job, if I don't have the respect of others, right? But we get our hearts set on something. 
And we say, if I don't have this, I cannot make it. And then because you're thrown into a family, you're thrown into a community, you're thrown into a church with other people who are also thinking, if I don't get this, I can't be okay. Those people get in the way. And what James is saying is that all of us go, you know what? I have to have this. And if you get in the way between me and this thing that I have to have, I will kill you. I may not actually murder you, but I will undermine you. I will gossip about you. I will demean you. And so James says, look, this is the way sin works, wanting and killing, right? It's the two commandments of covetousness and murder, right? That we want, and then when our desires are thwarted, we kill. I heard Dan Allender, a great uh, Christian therapist and writer, talk about the way that these two sins eat away in our lives and in our marriages, the two, the two twin sins of coveting and killing, that it undermines our marriages, right? Everything's great until you realize that the two of you want something that's at odds with one another, and then you start to hold one another in contempt for those things. It gets in the way of our churches. We desire different things, and then we turn on one another. It undermines our workplaces, that killing and coveting are at the root of how we fail to love God and our neighbor. And Paul says, flee. He says, run away. Get away from all of this. Get away from this killing and this coveting, this desire and greed and anger. Flee. Jesus invites us to leave all this behind. Think about what Jesus said to the rich young man when he called him to let go of his great wealth, to give it all away to the poor and to come and follow him. He's saying, flee. Flee this stuff that's killing you. Think about what he said to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. We're not used to talking this way. But what Paul knew and what Jesus knew is that sin is death, right? That sin, though it, though it feels good, though in some ways we look all around us and it's all we've ever known, it's not a little problem, right? It's not something that we can manage. It's not something that we can tweak. It's not something that we can get behind, uh, beyond. It's something that, we have, that threatens our lives and that we have to learn to get away from at all costs. The prophet Jeremiah says in his condemnation of the false prophets, he says, woe to them because they treat the wounds of my people lightly, right? They, it was like going in, let's say, you, you know, you go in to see your oncologist and you have cancer and they say, you know what, put a Band-Aid on it, give it 24 hours of rest and you should be all right. You know, no, <laughs> this is really bad. There's something going on in me that if it's not treated is going to kill me. And you're telling me just to put an external bandage on it. No, Jesus, now echoed by Paul, says you're going to have to run away from all of this. And so if we can't run away in the sense of moving to somewhere this isn't going to be a problem for us, what does this fleeing look like? We're going to see that as we go. But of course, there's another question. What are we pursuing Right? What is it if we're supposed to leave what's killing us? 
What are we called to pursue? Christianity is about so much more than what we're called to leave behind. So what does Paul invite us to pursue? He says this, pursue righteousness. This is the other part of verse 11. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. He says, look, the things that you're supposed to be pursuing in your life, and then he drapes these words of incredible character, right? There's th- this list that Paul gives here overlaps significantly with the list that he gives in Galatians as the fruit of the Spirit. It overlaps considerably with uh, the words of Jesus and the Beatitudes, right? This is, uh, this is a picture of what a whole and flourishing life with God looks like. It's a life that's instead of being marked by the hunger and desire for more and the rage that burns when our desires are blocked, it's marked by gentleness and godliness and righteousness. Character matters in our lives. Jesus calls us to live a life of genuine moral goodness and soundness. Paul says, fight the good fight. The the Greek here could either be uh, fight the good fight, run the good race, kind of the same words. But I love that he contrasts that with this life that's built around fighting around the wrong stuff, right? Your desires, your quarrels, your constant anger. He says, no, no, don't fight about those things. But there is stuff in life that's worth fighting about, right? There is something that's worth fighting for in your life, and it's that question of who are you becoming? It's fighting to become someone whose life is whole and healthy and righteous and gentle and loving. But the reality is that for most of us, we don't think about this. We don't think about this as being what matters most about us. At any given moment, who are we becoming? We have to learn to actually think about it and to prioritize it, to think about, man, who am I becoming this day, this week, this year? Am I becoming more gentle or more harsh? Am I becoming more loving or more selfish? Am I becoming more hopeful or more cynical? Just to to ponder one situation. Think about the number of times that you were asked in your life, how are you doing? Right? You've probably been asked that at some point today. I hope so. I hope in a church somebody asked you, how are you doing? And I'm not thinking just of those, you know, we all ask that question sometimes or like passing on a sidewalk or you're just getting into the office. Hey, how's it going? Nobody really expects you to answer in that setting. You know, that's just kind of hello. But what I mean is when you find yourself in a situation where somebody asks and they really want to know, maybe you're sitting down over coffee with a friend, you're pulling up in a situation where you've really got time to talk. Maybe uh, Willie talked about our growth groups. I can guarantee you at a growth group, you should be asked, how are you doing? How can we pray for you? What's going on in your life? And usually what happens in those moments is we, you know, we're not prepared, so our mind spins a little bit. Oh, how am I doing? Right? What can I say to this person? How is it going in my life? I bet that I could uh, chalk up 90% of the way that we answer that question. Even speaking for myself, 90% 90 of the time, the way that I answer that question is some version of this. Man, I'm really busy. I've been so busy. Or, you know what? I'm just exhausted. I'm so tired. Or, man, work is really hard. 
Work's been hard. Or man, kids are really hard right now. Right? Think about that's something to do with the tired. But normally, I mean, th- those are valid answers. Half the time I am busy and tired. But that does stop at kind of a surface level, right? Doesn't it? That, that's an answer of what's happening to you and how do you feel in the moment about what's happening to you. Rarely do we take that one step closer to the inside of ourselves to answer not, what, not what's happening to you, not what's going on out there towards you, but how that affects your heart, how that affects who you are and who you're becoming. So not just my work is stressful, but maybe my work is stressful. And, you know, I'm really realizing and struggling with how much my work is my identity and how much success in my work matters too much to me. That's a a step in closer to your heart. Maybe, yeah, my kids are at a difficult age. Kids are tough. But God is using it to confront me with how much I love control and respect in my house. And I'm having to learn to love, even as an adult, how to love when I don't get my way. Yeah, I'm busy. But you know what? I'm realizing that I rely on my busyness to avoid being present to God and present to others. This is a habit that we have to develop. You know, you think, man, that, when I ask somebody what they mean, I really don't expect all that much info. But it's a habit that we have to cultivate, not just so that we have something to say, but so that we actually know, so that we keep tabs with, man, what is God doing in my life? God's doing more in your life in any given moment than just asking you to keep up with your million responsibilities, keep your head above water, and keep moving forward. He's always doing something in our souls and in our hearts. If this sounds like, you know, 21st century psychiatric mumbo jumbo, John Flavel, Puritan in the 17th century said this. He said, there are some men and women who have lived on earth for 40 or 50 years and have had scarcely one hour's discourse with their own heart the entire time. People have been 50, 60 years in this world and have not paused for more than an hour over all those 50 or 60 years to ask, how is my soul? How is my heart? How is... how?" How are my relations with God and others? And so then Paul turns his attention as an example of this in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. I love this. Look, if many of us were asked, hey, what's your goal in life? For honest, a lot of us would be, I don't know that I need to be rich, but I'd like to be richer than I currently am, right? I'd love to be one of those people that when Paul says to those who are rich in the present age goes, yo, that's me. In this present age, I'm doing all right. And yet what Paul says is, look, what matters most about you isn't your wealth, All he's saying here is, look, to the rich in this present age, the question isn't, are you rich and how are you going to keep it? The question is, what kind of person are you going to be? Right, great, you're a rich person. Fine, that tells me nothing about your heart, your character, what kind of person you are. So if you're going to be a rich person, what kind of rich person are you going to be? 
And he says, strive to be one who builds up a treasury, not of, not of wealth, but of good works. Strive to be somebody who shares and richly provides us with everything out of God who's richly provided us with everything to enjoy. Do good, be generous, be ready to share. I love this. Paul's saying, look, I'm not hung up on your wealth. I'm not hung up with who you are. What kind of person are you going to be with all that God has given to you? He's inviting them to answer in light of my wealth. What is God inviting me to flee? And what is God inviting me to pursue? Right? In light of my life, in light of my responsibilities and my blessings, my benefits and my hindrances, who is God calling me to be? What's he calling me to flee and let go of? And what's he calling me to pursue? But we'd be remiss if we stopped there because what Paul knew and what he encourages Timothy to know is that Christianity is never just about what are you leaving and what are you pursuing? At, a, at, a, at an even deeper level, the what we're pursuing is never a what, but a who. Right? That the pursuit that we're after isn't just what kind of person are we becoming, what kind of good works will we attain, but it's who fills our vision and who fills our life. Right? It's not a way of life so much as it is the person who tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. For Timothy, he urges him not to, you know, look, your, your Bible in these final verses here, he says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And your Bible probably has knowledge in quotation marks. Which I, love, I love Paul, who we think dictated most of his letters. I love the idea of him dictating this and say, hey, Tim, tell Timothy to avoid pursuing knowledge and put it in air quotes. Right? Throw, throw some quotations on that guy. Because what he's getting at is he's saying, look, there's something called knowledge that's not really knowledge. And this, we believe, is the beginnings of what became the Gnostic heresy in the early church, which Gnosticism is, Gnostic is uh, out of the Greek for knowledge, gnosis. And it was the idea that salvation was found in some kind of knowledge that was out there, that was hidden from ordinary people that you had to pry into and attain, and then you would be saved. Then you could attain to some kind of higher and greater spiritual life. And if we're honest, though, none of us would probably define ourselves as Gnostics. You may have just heard that word for the first time. We're all prone to believing that real meaning in our life has to do with attaining something that's up there beyond us, right? That there's some kind of secret knowledge that's being kept, and if I can just figure it out, if I can just figure out the way to God or the way to make life uh, the secret to make my life run better, to understand myself, to understand spirituality, then I'll really make it. Then I'll really be something. And Paul, over and over in this section, is saying, look, Timothy, for you and for your people, remember, salvation isn't out there somewhere. It's not up to you to figure it out and to attain it. Remember, what does he say over and over again? Hold on, hold tight, confess the faith. Stay rooted in what's already been given to you. Everything that you have, everything that you need has been given to you in Jesus. Notice what he says. He says, hold fast to the good confession. Essentially, the confession of faith. Jesus is Lord. Remember Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. 
What he's saying is, look, Timothy, for you confessing faith in Christ, confessing that Jesus is Lord and Savior, is the way to life and fullness. It's the way to grace and mercy. It's the way to love. But for Jesus, when he stood on trial before Pontius Pilate and confessed who he was, confessed to be the King and the Lord, for him, it cost him his life. For him, it meant laying down his life for you. The good confession costs Jesus everything in order to profit us absolutely everything. Jesus lays down his life for us so that the fight of faith, the good fight that he calls Timothy to fight, the race that he calls Timothy to run, is not a race to attain to salvation. It's not a fight to win God's love, right? It's a fight motivated out of God's love. Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured all things, even the cross. You know, we'll end with this. It's several points in 1 Timothy. When Paul is trying the hardest to motivate Timothy towards something, there's three times in particular that he does this. He's arguing to Timothy to do something, do something, do something, and then it seems like he just breaks out into a song. And it's always a song about Jesus. It's a song about Jesus' incarnation, life, death, and resurrection. Look, he does it here in verse, 16, uh, in verse 15 through 17. What does he say? Which he will display at the proper time. He, Jesus, who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, to whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. If you're like me, you're probably... It was a little confusing that we kept reading after that. That sounds like, as a preacher, that sounds like a conclusion. But he's just bursting into this song of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Earlier in, verse, uh, in chapter 3, in verse 16, after he's told Timothy how to instruct the people to live in the household of God, he says, He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up into glory. Then again, in, in chapter 1, urging Timothy to pastoral faithfulness. In his calling, in verse 17, he says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, though he can be hard on Timothy at times, though he's urging him to be all that he's called to be as a pastor, just keeps breaking into these rich hymns Hymns to Jesus, hymns about his redemption. It's like he's reminding Timothy, look, Christianity is a song. It moves the soul to recognize all that God has done for us. It's a life of joy and praise and gladness. So when we answer the question, who are we becoming? Who is God calling us to be? Paul would want to be sure that we answer, not merely in terms of our character, Right, More generous, more loving, more patient, more gentle, as much as all those things matter. Because who Paul was as he got older, who Paul was as he grew, was someone who saw Jesus everywhere and who praised Jesus with every word that he spoke. Who are we becoming? Where are we headed? My hope and prayer for each of us, as we say in our church's mission statement, is that you are becoming, that I am becoming, 
someone who more and more can see Jesus and display Jesus in all of his truth and beauty and goodness in every corner of our life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us for the ways that we live superficial lives, living on the surface of things, defining our lives by our circumstances. Lord Jesus, help us um, to follow your work, not just in the world, but in our own hearts, to be able to trace the working of your redemption to be able to know uh, what it looks like in our lives, in my life, to flee all that kills me and destroys me, all that your word calls sin, in order to seek after your life, a life lived in intimacy and joy, a life lived in worship and fellowship and communion. Lord, we pray uh, more and more that you would help us to see you in all of our lives, to hear your voice and to display who you are in our world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.